know, that particular provision um, that allows the judges to limit the rights, you know, based on what's you know, reasonable or justifiable in a democratic country, it really opens the door to the judicial bias in a sense. And, and, and more importantly, actually, I think more reflection of judicial ideology. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Today we want to talk about uh, some of the changes that we are witnessing that seem to be happening at light speed in Canadian society and culture. People of my generation would remember a time when stores weren't open on Sundays and when school days opened with the reciting of the Lord's Prayer. These are things that were generally accepted in our society until about 40 years ago. So what is happening? How did we get here? Where did we start from? And what can we do about it? Well, today's guest is uh, an historian who has spent a great deal of time uh, watching this and studying this transition uh, in Canada from what was a, a Judeo-Christian-based society into one that seems to be hell-bent on driving into extreme secularism and liberalism. And, uh, and so he's an authority and expert on this topic, and so we're looking forward to talking with him to find out how we can answer some of these questions. Uh, his name is uh, Michael Wagner. Uh, before we get to him, I, of course, we have a few uh, quotations, aphorisms that we're going to uh, share with you to frame the conversation. The first one is from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He knows a thing or two about the distinction between uh, liberty and tyranny. One of the, the things he wrote uh, is, justice is conscience, not a personal conscience, but the conscience of the whole of humanity. Closer to home, a well-known Albertan politician uh, Stockwell Day once famously wrote that our parliamentary system has simply failed to meet the challenge of judicial activism. And that's a topic we're going to be uh, talking with our guest about. And finally, from um, a very famous American Christian jurist uh, who was on their, their Supreme Court for a very long time. This is Justice Antonin Scalia, who died about seven years ago. He once wrote that God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. If I've brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Who do we have on the show today? Well, Michael Wagner. Michael is um, uh, a well-known Alberta author. He is a researcher and writer, often on uh, platforms such as the Western Standard. Uh, he has a PhD in political science from the University of Alberta, and uh, he has written a number of very, very fascinating books about Alberta and about Canadian history. Uh, one of the books that he's written uh, is particular to the topic that we're going to be dealing with today. Welcome to the show, Michael. I, I should say welcome back to the show because you were a previous guest. Thank you for having me, Leighton. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, what we want to talk about is um, this idea that we've become a very secular society. We see these signs everywhere. And it would be very hard if, if uh, you know, let, let's say uh, aliens from outer space were here in uh, 1975 uh, and they came and they've landed uh, today in Canada. 
they, they would have a hard time recognizing the society because of all the changes. Can you, would you mind talking a little bit about maybe the, 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 the beginnings of secularism in Canadian society and, and maybe uh, talk about where we were uh, maybe 40, 50 years ago and, and maybe how we got here? Sure. Well, basically, you know, um, Canada needs to be considered as part of a larger group of countries, you know, the Western countries, because all of the Western countries, in a general sense, had a Christian philosophical foundation. Like every society has a philosophical foundation. There, there's no society that doesn't. And so whether whether it's a Christian society or an Islamic society or a secular society, every society kind of has a, a basic framework of ideas that its laws and its government are based upon. So Canada is part of the Western family of nations that were all essentially based on a Christian foundation. And this whole Western civilization has, you know, throughout the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century, been drifting away from its Christian foundation and toward a more secular or progressive kind of foundation. So a lot of the changes that we talk about that are happening in Canada have also are also taking place right now in other countries like the United States, we see the same type of thing. So there's a general sense in which Canada is part of a, a bigger move of the West away from Christianity towards a different worldview that people are endorsing. But there's all more, also more specifically Canadian things. And, and this is like where the Charter of Rights came in. Even though all the countries have been drifting away and Canada would be still drifting away in the secular direction, even without the Charter of Rights, I believe that it's one of the tools that has been most helpful for the secularists in helping to move Canada away from its Christian foundation. So even though Canada would have been gently, you know, moving away from its Christian foundation without the charter, the charter kind of supercharged that move because it gave secularists tools that they could use legally to change laws in Canada that had a Christian basis for that. And so we can talk about this at different levels, the move away from Christianity, like in a general sense of part of Western civilization, we can talk about it more specifically, and we probably will be today about what particularly was happening in Canada, and how Canada's experience was somewhat different from the others, in terms of the institutional changes that enhanced the move away from its Christian perspective. One of the uh, significant differences between our charter and the British common law system of, of assessing uh, rights, and also the American system, is section one of the charter, which is this catch-all uh, public policy saving provision. And it essentially provides the, the court with the ability to, to, to uphold or overlook uh, a, a specific rights violation if, the, if in the balance uh, the, 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 the public safety or public benefit of of uh, of not upholding the right or 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 withstanding the the violation of the right uh, outweighs the 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 uh, severity of the rights violation. We saw this particularly with COVID, for example, with freedom of religion. For example, in in California, um, when when uh, when there were restrictions placed on churches being open, uh, that that was taken before the the Supreme Court of the United States. And, uh, and those restrictions that were imposed in California upon attendance in church uh, were, were, were struck down as unconstitutional. So in a real sense, we're worse off with the charter, particularly because of Section 1, aren't we? It gives, it gives the, the judges this enormous power, really, to, to, to almost disregard or overrule the individual rights violations that, 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 that occur in a situation like that. Uh, do you, would you agree with that assessment? 
Yeah, I sure, I sure do. And I think, you know, that particular provision um, that allows the judges to limit the rights, you know, based on what's you know, reasonable or justifiable in a democratic country, it really opens the door to the judicial bias in a sense. And, and, and more importantly, actually, I think more reflection of judicial ideology, because mm-hmm. um, it gives them an open door, you know, to justify what their particular views would be in a particular file. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, the American system doesn't give them as much of a door like that as the Canadian system does. And so, um, you know, for the most part when we, when we look at the COVID uh, lockdown issues um, in a general sense you know pro, it was is a progressive you know people who have a progressive viewpoint tend to be more in favor of those um, COVID lockdown measures and the judges tend to be progressive in their ideology as well so they they are are more easily in their own minds justify those kinds of restrictions on citizen rights you know it's it's the more conservative people generally speaking who thought that those uh, COVID measures overstepped what the government should be doing and were therefore a violation of their rights and it's more progressive to see those um, the, the restrictions as being very important and so people with a more progressive outlook um, are going to be find it more easy to justify those restrictions and because judges have that particular outlook for the most part themselves they find it easy to justify this lockdowns as well and because this provision in the charter you know gives them that leeway then they can you know it's, it it gives them the ability to, to you know like say restrict those rights to some degree this uh, concept of judicial activism is something that um most people, I, I think, are unaware of, but it has very uh, important uh, uh, implications for, for society. So this concept of judicial activism um, is, is concerning because uh, it, it essentially uh, purports to say that judges assume a role as independent policymakers or trustees on behalf of society that goes beyond their traditional role as simply interpreters of the constitution and our laws. In other words, they assume the role of lawmakers versus interpreters of the law that's made democratically by our legislatures. Do I have, do I have that right? And is that, is that, is that cause for concern? Yeah, yes to both. You do have that right. And it is cause for concern. I mean, the whole concept idea of judicial activism in my mind, it came up originally in the United States, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, by the 1960s, because, you know, before before World War Two, for the most part, the US Supreme Court um, had been much more, uh, much more conservative in its approach, like much more um, self limiting in its approach. And it was after World War Two, when this whole concept of judicial activism became a bigger idea, where judges became, you know, t- t- took more upon themselves in terms of what they were doing in terms of their constitutional interpretation of the laws, it began striking down more laws than ever before. So it was within the U.S. context, I think, that this terminology, judicial activism, you know, became more of a concept, especially, as I mentioned, by the, the 1960s under Earl Warren, who was, who was the chief justice then. So again, then, with the charter, be, before the charter, Canada didn't have that kind of problem because judges did not have, you know, what was called the constitutional supremacy. They weren't able, uh, they didn't have as much leeway to strike down laws. They could, like there was an account actually in Alberta in 1938 the Alberta social credit government put some restrictions on press freedom in Alberta and the Supreme Court of Canada struck that down even though we didn't have you know a constitutional bill of rights because it violated you know the the same the British idea of freedom and liberty so so the Supreme Court and judges could strike down laws before the charter but it was very rare and it was only in those more extreme circumstances but the charter you know gave uh, the judges a platform and and uh, and the powers to use it you know to interfere in in political matters 
more than ever before in Canadian history. And as, and I mentioned, like this was in, this was anticipated by the critics of the charter, and even you know Trudeau mentioned this in his in his original book. So this was something that we should have expected uh, with with the charter becoming uh, you know adopted in 1982, and it has happened. I mean, not every judge takes to the same degree. There are judges with a more conservative perspective who who do stand back a bit more and and um, are less likely to strike down legislation. I think there's been studies done by political scientists, you know, of different political of different Supreme Court judges and their perspectives, because they the, the judges tend to have you know a particular perspective and that's consistent throughout their you know period in office. So they some judges are are much more um, more likely more likely to take the judicial activism approach than others. But the charter kind of super enhanced that for every judge if they wanted to, and so you know judicial activism has become a much bigger problem in Canada since the charter and because of the charter so that's it's definitely a problem and it, you know like i say if you were to study canada's history from the perspective of judicial decisions there would be a notice noticeable um change that occurred in 1985 once the charter had come into effect the net effect seems to be that in just over 100 years we went from a country that had a, a lord's day act a national lord's day act and a vote in parliament uh, you, you, almost unanimously endorsing that to a country in which we have a ministry of Islamophobia, uh, which is a, which is almost a watchdog outfit looking out for attacks upon Islamophobia, presumably from Christians. So, so um, this is a very significant shift, isn't it? Um, and we've seen actually uh, in the United States, there's been a lot of talk recently about um, the Dobbs decision, uh, which overturned, uh, an, uh, or, or I believe, a 1972 decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, Roe versus Wade. In Roe versus Wade, essentially what the court did is it breathed into the law a right uh, that didn't exist. And when I say right, I mean as part of a constitutional right, a right for a woman to have an abortion. Um, but we can see how judicial activism can shift. So in 1972, we have a progressive court, uh, at, at least predominantly. And in, in 50 years later, we have a court that perhaps has more of a conservative bent and it, it results in a significant shift in the law. So that's one example of how important the politics of judges can be, isn't it? Yeah, that's a very good example, actually. Roe v. Wade's probably the classic example of judicial activism in the United States because, as you mentioned, those judges essentially invented a new right out of the air. I mean, it was mm -hmm. not in the U.S. Constitution. The founders of the, United, of the U.S. Constitution would never have considered that they were establishing a right to abortion as the Roe v. Wade court did. And, you know, this brings up another important issue, too, with regard to judicial, judicial activism. When judges, when judicial activism becomes the dominant framework for judges, it makes the selection of judges a much more significant political issue. So especially after the Roe v. Wade decision, the selection of Supreme Court judges became a very, very big issue, especially in the United States presidential politics, because it's the presidents who, who nominate mm -hmm. Supreme Court justices. So before, before Roe v. Wade, and certainly before the 1960s, you know, um, uh, the, the selection of, pres of Supreme Court justices wasn't necessarily, you know, an issue in a presidential election, but it sure became a big issue in presidential elections since then. And and there were many people who actually defended Donald Trump, like in 1960, sorry, in 2016, a lot of people supported Donald Trump because he promised to appoint conservative Supreme Court justices, and he did. And that, you know, is why um, Roe v. Wade was overturned with the Dobbs decisions, because, you um, 
Donald Trump had appointed enough Supreme Court decisions to tip the court in a more conservative direction. I mean, it was it was prime. It was largely Donald Trump's appointees who were very you know involved in that um, Dobbs decision, or at least they were key voters in overturning the Roe v. Wade decision. So, so, so judicial activism makes the appointment of judges way more important as a political issue. You know, especially in the United States. Now, it's a little bit less so in Canada because Canada's Charter of Rights has something that's a bit different, and that's the notwithstanding clause. Now, the notwithstanding clause allows Canadian provincial legislatures or the federal government to um, kind of to restrict or, or to to temporarily restrict certain court decisions. So it, it means that like if, if, a, if a law was passed by, say, Alberta government and the Supreme Court struck it down as a violation of certain charter provisions, the Alberta government could theoretically repass that law and invoke the notwithstanding act, which would protect it from the court's decision for a five year period, a renewable five year period. Now, because of this notwithstanding provision, which allows some politicians in some circumstances to kind of temporarily at least overturn a court decision, that makes Canadian um, judicial politics uh, like less intense than the American ones, because the Americans don't have a notwithstanding clause. So if the Supreme Court rules something, that's it. That's the bottom line. You can't go any further than that. The only way to change that was to appoint new judges, you know, which takes generations, like with the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. In Canada, politicians do have some options that the Americans don't. And so Canadian politics hasn't taken on the same characteristic of, of having the importance of judicial nominees. So, you know, the, the, when, the, when there's a federal election, you don't hear the uh, leaders of the conservative and liberal parties promising to appoint certain kinds of Supreme Court justices, because the politicians still have an option with the notwithstanding clause. If there's a very extreme Supreme Court decision that gets enacted, they can have some leeway in, in trying to deal with that with the notwithstanding clause. So that's one of the differences mm -hmm. there between Canada and the United States and their constitutions. We've talked about activist uh, judges. Uh, we also have activist mayors in Alberta, um, one in Edmonton and one in Calgary. And in a recent piece you wrote, you asked the question, is Alberta still Alberta? Uh, and, and I believe this was in the context of the mayor of Calgary passing a bylaw, uh, which uh, essentially prohibits uh, peaceful protest. Uh, this is in the context of uh, Drag Queen Story Hour event where a local pastor, Pastor Reimer, was imprisoned. He was just released. But I believe part of his conditions of release are that he's, he, he cannot uh, engage his constitutional right of peaceful protest. So when asking the question, is Alberta still Alberta, is that part of what you were speaking to? Like not that particular um, incident that you mentioned, although like it, it's relevant. Like what I was talking about, um, I was looking towards the 2023 election. And mm -hmm. the question was, you know, can the UCP win or will Albertans actually vote for a socialist NDP party? And someone, uh, an activist mentioned in a news story saying, well, it depends. Is Alberta still Alberta? Like we know historically Alberta would not elect the NDP. And in 2015, the NDP got elected because the conservative vote was divided between the progressive conservative party and the Wild Rose party. So the NDP actually only got... Um, less than 41% of the vote in 2015, but because of our first past the post system, they were able to get a majority government, but still the vast majority of Albertans had not voted for them. So historically, Albertans would not vote for a socialist NDP party. And so uh, they were looking to 2023, if Albertans are going to elect an NDP government, like with, with full intention to do so, that would mean Alberta is not Alberta anymore. If you know, you know, his, the, the way we consider Alberta historically, what it meant historically has changed and it's not Alberta, the Alberta we used to know. And so that, that's kind of what I was getting at. So in terms of the city, like with Calgary, that's where we see the change, like the, the move away from conservative ideas in Alberta is strongest in the cities. That's where we see it. Like the, it would be harder to get, you know, in rural areas, 
the NDP is not going to win most likely. I mean, those are very solid conservative areas, but in, you know, especially in Edmonton and now maybe in Calgary as well, the population is moving in a more leftward direction. It's what's more likely to elect uh, an NDP government. So Alberta is changing, um, you know, in a more leftward direction, especially in the cities. And so that's kind of what that question for you is Alberta still Alberta. Well, the 2023 election will be, you know, part of an indication that way, because if the NDP does get elected, you know, without a split vote on the right, that means, you know, Alberta has changed fundamentally as a province. It's not the kind of province that it used to be. Our, uh, our current premier, uh, Daniel Smith has been campaigning mostly on uh, the idea that uh, the future is bright for Alberta economically. And she's been very focused on that, focusing on things like healthcare, fiscal responsibility. They recently announced uh, a surplus budget. I do note, however, that, uh, Without the uh, the federal health money, that probably would have been a deficit budget. Uh, that's just as an aside. Uh, but a couple of things she's not talking about uh, that are very noticeable in terms of her silence or the silence of her government. Uh, she's not commented on what's going on in Calgary in terms of the imprisonment of a Christian pastor who tried to stop a drag queen story event. She's not con- commented publicly, as far as I know, about the city of Edmonton's proposal to create a world economic uh, test uh, center, making Edmonton a 15-minute city, uh, which has uh, very serious implications in terms of individual liberty. Um, You wrote a piece uh, about um, the role of religion in Alberta exceptionalism. It seems to me that this particular government, Daniel Smith's government, is staying away from those issues and focusing on secular fiscal ones as an expression of conservatism. Um, what is the role of religion in Alberta exceptionalism in your view? Well, this has a lot to do with Alberta's history. And I mean, not too many pe- people remember, not even people in Alberta, but you know, from 1935 until 1968, now, there was two premiers in Alberta. They were both radio evangelists at the same time as they were premiers. Like the first one was William Bible Bill Aberhart, who was elected in 1935 as Alberta's first social credit premier, you know, he was famous as a radio evangelist before he became involved in politics. And he was, you know, he was elected. He kept, even as premier, he kept his radio program, his uh, back to the Bible program. So when he died in 1943, he he was um, succeeded by Ernest Manning, who had been a cabinet minister who had actually kind of mentored under Aberhart. So Ernest Manning became premier then from 1943 until 1968. And he also took over Aberhart's radio ministry. And not only not only took it over and kept preaching on that regularly, but he actually expanded it further beyond Alberta and Saskatchewan into Ontario. So we had a period in, in Alberta history, you know, from, from the 1940s to the late 1960s, where people in Ontario on a weekly basis could hear the premier of Alberta preaching the gospel over the radio. He was a premier and a radio evangelist at the same time, but both of them were. So, and and um, Ernest Manning never lost an election. He was always reelected, you know, usually with big, 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 big majorities. So Alberta was that kind of a society, you know, up to the 1960s, where a radio evangelist could be premier. And so, you know, it wouldn't necessarily mean that every Albertan was a Christian or that even the vast majority were, but they were comfortable with that. Like people were comfortable having a, you know, a technically a religious leader also as a political leader. It wasn't a big deal. It didn't cause trouble. So Alberta was like a very favorable towards uh, Christianity at that time. That's when Alberta was known as the Bible Belt, like having social credit government with preacher uh, politicians 
um, was probably the single biggest factor that got Alberta the idea of the, of the Bible Belt. And so, so Alberta was, was very much seen as kind of an evangelical center in Canada. And that, that the book that I used mostly for that, um, to do that article on Alberta's religious exceptionalism, like Alberta was considered to be so different that in the 1950s, the University of Toronto did a 10 volume series just on Alberta to try to explain Alberta to the rest of Canada. And one of the books in that series you know, I used for that talked about how Alberta was like the center of the, the Bible college movement for Canada, like Alberta had, you know, the Prairie Bible Institute at one time was at least the second largest Bible college in North America. And it, the only rival to it was was Moody Bible Institute, like there wasn't sure which one was the biggest, and which was the second, there were also many other Bible colleges in Alberta. So, you know, up to the 1950s, especially, there was lots of, of you know, evangelical activity in Alberta, Alberta was seen that way as different from the rest of Canada. And of course, that reflected itself in the politics. Now, Alberta has changed a lot recently. And so, um, you know, this is this I'll actually this ties in with this tie. This ties in with what we were talking yeah. about at the beginning. You know, this kind of religious change that's taken place yeah. in Canada and the Western world. You know, generally speaking, that um, people you know have turned away from um, Christianity in a general sense. There's fewer people who go to church. You know, fewer people who identify themselves as Christians, and so that kind of change reflects itself in the politics because mm. the politicians look at that and they you know they know that if they take a stand on something that might appeal to one part of the population, it's not going to appeal to another part. And so I think you know referring to Danielle Smith, she's going to want to keep her mouth shut on a lot of these things, at least leading up to the election, because anything she says, you know, will become controversial and the NDP will try and use right. it against her in one way or another. Right. So, you know, I, I would expect her to be, you know, quiet on any kind of controversial issue, at least until after the election. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, there's been a, a very significant religious change in, in, you know, in Canada generally, but Alberta, it's, it's even more distinct because of Alberta had a more distinctively Christian culture itself than the other parts of Canada, you know, throughout the, you know, up until at least the 1960s. And so, you know, we're seeing the same thing happening in Alberta that we're seeing in Canada. Right. And of course, this reflect in the politics. That's a nice way to round off the conversation, Michael. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, maybe uh, leave off with our reading list. As you know, you've been here before. Uh, I've got a couple of books here I'm going to mention, uh, one of which is, of course, yours, Leaving God Behind. This is a book that you wrote uh, about uh, 10, 11 years ago. And the, script, and the description is, the purpose of leaving God behind is twofold. First, to demonstrate using old laws and public policies that Canada was, for most of its history, a Christian country, as you've talked about. And second, to show why it is no longer Christian in any political sense. The second book I wanted to mention is one that is probably known to you. Uh, it's uh, It picks up in a lot of ways... Uh, some of the threads in your book. This is a book by Donald Savoy uh, that was written only uh, a couple of years ago. It's called Democracy in Canada, the Disintegration of Our Institutions. And here he says that Canada's representative democracy is confronting important challenges. At the top of the list is the growing inability of the national government to perform its most important roles, namely mapping out collective actions that resonate in all regions, as well as enforcing these measures. So those are two books that I would recommend for today. Michael, do you have any that you'd like to add to our reading list? I do have a book that I read recently that I'd like to recommend. It's by it's called Conservatism, a Rediscovery by Yoram Hazoni. He's become prominent in recent years. He's an Israeli-American political philosopher. And this is his, uh, he, he explains, goes back to the roots of conservative ideology or conservative thinking and explains in the Western world, um, you know, what the basis of conservative thinking was and why it's important. And, you know, he actually because it's the West, he's talking about Christianity a lot, uh, Christianity a lot. And even though he's an Orthodox Jewish man himself, he understands the importance of Christianity to the basis of Western society. And he sees 
that the only a re restoration of that kind of Christian influence will bring back, you know, the strength of Western civilization. So even though he's a, a Jewish person himself, he understands how important Christianity was to the West, and he's advocating for it to be, you know, again, become the basis of the West as a way of restoring conservatism in, in the Western world, and especially the English-speaking world, and, you know, the United States and Britain and Canada. Well, wonderful. Thank you for that, uh, Michael. We'll okay. add that to our reading list. And thank you for being our special guest today on Gray Matter. It's been just great having you back on to talk about these different topics. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.